Hey guys, just a heads up. Any political views expressed by our valid guests are their own and their appearance on the show does not necessarily imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. You know, we grew up with James Bond and the Bourne Identity, and it's just this industry that has been completely dramatized by the entertainment industry. And what was the reality? You show up and you're like literally in a cubicle in a basement with no windows. You have to walk a mile from your car to get to the building, and you have to leave your cell phone in the car. You're completely isolated from the rest of humanity for your entire time that you're there. And it's just like, holy cow, this blows. It's really kind of depressing. From Lux Mundi, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong. And on today's show, Trey Stevens joins us to talk about what got him to pursue a career in the intelligence community, how he got his foot in the door, but then pivoted when things didn't turn out to be what he expected. Trey is now a venture capitalist and the co-founder and chairman of Andrel Industries, an American defense technology company now valued at $1.9 billion. So get this, Trey was 35 years old when he started Andrel and his co-founder was just 24, but not just any 24 year old. We're talking about Palmer Lucky, the creator of the virtual reality company, Oculus. Trey describes Palmer as a prodigy whose work not only disrupted the world of gaming, but also the DODs, the Department of Defense. Before Palmer built Oculus, the DOD had been tinkering around with virtual reality headsets that literally cost over $100,000. Palmer walked in and built something that cost $500 that was 10x better in performance. And so that pairing of consumer electronics with defense enterprise software experience is super compelling. So today, Trey's working on building products that can solve problems for the United States and its allies by using defense technology. Here's an example of one of the ways they thought through an issue. You might remember the highly controversial campaign promise Trump made in 2016 about building a wall. Beyond its policy implications, here's how a company like Trey's has to think through implementation. I mean, there are all of these really, really bad ways that you can do border security perimeter security for critical infrastructure. There's the physical wall. A wall slows things down, but it doesn't actually like prevent traffic from happening. And going under or going above. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tunnels, there's ladders. <laughs> there's actually a way to do this fairly trivially with modern technology, which is a long-range camera, a long-range thermal sensor, a long-range radar, and computer vision to tell us when we see things. And then we leave it up to the law enforcement agents to use their legal authority to make decisions about how they're going to interact with those threats. So we have no policy position on this at all. In fact, I would argue that it's entirely nonpartisan. I believe that having more data is better for making policy decisions related to critical assets. And that's what we're doing. So now you might wonder how Trey got into this defense tech space since it's not one of the typical industries people talk about, nor did he get exposed to it because he grew up around this line of work or had family connections. In fact, he grew up in rural Ohio. 
where I'm from in Ohio. There's actually a book called Hillbilly Elegy by this guy named J.D. Vance that is like literally where I was raised. <laughs> there were economic problems. There were people that had socioeconomic challenges. The opioid epidemic is like very real. But like there were no real problems. I lived in a log cabin kind of in the middle of the woods. Kind of a charmed childhood in a lot of ways. To get to our house, you had to drive over a little creek down a gravel road. It was pretty removed from civilization. And my dad actually built the house with his bare hands. My biological father and my mom separated when I was at birth, essentially. She was remarried to my dad, the guy that raised me. So I had this incredible father in my life that decided to be my dad, which was like a really cool gift and decided not to have any additional kids because he didn't want there to be conflict or any tension and wanted my brother and I to be fully his kids. Wow. So that last name Stevens, is that his? Yeah. And, and to be honest, like it was so natural. There wasn't any tension. It wasn't like I was wondering who I was or anything like that. It was just like, yeah, he was just always my dad. I was very lucky, very blessed to have parents that loved God. My grandfather was the pastor of our church growing up. So there was never a question, are we going to church? Are we doing all of the extracurriculars involved with church? Because if we're going to spend time with grandma and grandpa, well, it's going to be at church. <laughs> so how would you describe yourself as a kid going to church? Definitely like kind of a teacher's pet type personality, competing in like state Bible drills, finding passages very quickly and memorizing a ton of scripture and wanting to be the kid that raises his hand and answers the questions. Sunday school, it's not that hard. It's like Jesus, God, or love. One of the three, it's like throw it out there. Trey says he grew up in the Southern Baptist Convention and was taught to withdraw himself from the ways of living and interacting with worldly things. So as a kid, he listened to Christian music, wore clothing with Christian messaging, and participated in church activities almost religiously. And his parents even went a step further to get him and his brother exposed to international missions. Every year, so starting from 13, you went to another country during the summer. Roughly, So yeah. it was, was it like Mexico at first? <laughs> yeah, we dove right in and our first international mission trip as a family was to the Gaza Strip during the second Intifada. So it was, it was not a gradual easing in at all. <laughs> because at that time when you went, it was uh, 1998. It was just a few years after it came under Palestinian control. I don't know if you were aware of that. What was your understanding when you knew you were going to go at that time? It's kind of crazy because you fly across the world and you land in a place that is completely different from where you were, but you step off the airplane and there's a McDonald's in the airport in Tel Aviv. And you're like, oh, maybe this isn't so different. Then you like get in the car and you drive away from Tel Aviv. And before you know it, you're like weaving through concrete barricades and there are people with automatic rifles. And suddenly you're like, oh wait, I am not in rural <laughs> Ohio anymore. The tensions were, were really high. I mean, I, I don't think I had ever lived or experienced a place that had frequent gunfire going off at night and the sound of rockets. Definitely for a kid, I wouldn't call it traumatic because nothing super traumatic happened, obviously, but it definitely changed my perspective on my little isolated window of the world. What would you say was kind of a takeaway from that? In that experience, grew very attached to the idea that I wanted to have international experiences be part of my professional life. 
At the time, I thought it was going to be journalism, where I'd always enjoyed reading and writing. And so there was something to this storytelling aspect of journalism, where you get to kind of go in and experience the raw culture and emotions and then unpack it and tell a story. And I think that just seemed like a really cool opportunity to me that would have afforded me the ability to go and see things outside of this comfortable bubble that I had grown up in. And in high school, were you involved in high school journalism or anything like that? I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper, had some ups and downs with that experience of testing the limits of free speech. What did you do? Oh, man. There were so many things that I'm like almost embarrassed of now, although I care so deeply about freedom of speech that I probably shouldn't be that embarrassed. But I had this every issue op-ed that I called politics, politics, but with a KS at the end. So it was like a diss track for all the things that I thought were absurd. I remember writing an op-ed where I had surveyed hundreds of people at the school, asked them like, are you a Democrat or a Republican? And then asked for follow-up on specific beliefs. And then the op-ed was, no one even knows what they are. They basically are just whatever their parents are. And then their beliefs are so divergent from that that it's obvious that no one has any idea what they're talking about. I spent a fair amount of time in the principal's office. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I appreciated it at the time because I just thought that he had a very different perspective on the world than I did. But like looking back at it, it was evident to me that he was trying to teach me something about grace. (laughs) It's this this idea that just because you think something doesn't mean that it deserves airtime. And sometimes you have to make decisions on wisdom to not say things. So like, it's not just the wisdom of like what you say, it's also the wisdom to know when not to say things. And I think that that was really a question of like, yes, you are legally permitted to do this. And the school is not going to suspend or expel you for doing something that starts fights in the lunchroom, which literally happened in my case on at least two occasions. But you also need to understand what responsibility is. And you weld a big stick in that really every student in this 1200 person high school is going to at least flip through and casually peruse this newspaper. And that responsibility means that your decisions matter and you have to be smart. (laughs) Wow. So, so it's pretty crazy that you were the editor chief in your high school in journalism. So everyone probably thought you were most likely to become a journalist after high school. So what happened that changed this trajectory in your career? It was a singular moment. I was in a chemistry class my senior year in the morning of September 11th, 2001. There was a sound of someone running through the hall, yelling out that teachers should turn on their TVs. And the teacher, for whatever reason, was absolutely not going to turn on a TV during chemistry class. But there's all this commotion that's going on in the hall. And then I hear someone yell that we were under attack. And I kind of snapped at my chemistry teacher and I said, this is, this is crazy. Like this is a moment of real historic significance. We have to turn on the TV and see what's happening. And he said, no. And so I got up and I left. And as I was walking out the door, he said, I'm going to call the principal's office. And I said, good, because that's where I'll be. (laughs) And so I went to the principal's office and sat down on the couch in his office and spent the rest of the morning there watching the events of 9-11 unfold. And Because he was this real mentor of mine by that point, you know, we had really gone through the thick of it over the last few years together. He basically just talked through this with me. He was a a history teacher, so very well suited for these conversations. 
And I remember going home at the end of the school day thinking like, yes, I could be part of the media and the storytelling could be really interesting, but maybe there's something more to being hands-on, trying to solve some of the problems rather than just reporting on them or talking about them. And so I went from this thought process that I wanted to go to Northwestern or Columbia or to one of these great journalism schools to basically overnight just completely shifting and saying like, I want to work in defense national security community. And so my focus then turned to schools that were, were exceptional at that. So this happened your senior year of high school, September 2001. So it was just when you were starting off your final year that you decided that you're going to change. So what happened when college applications came around? I applied to a lot of schools and it turns out that I only got into one. You know, I got a stack of skinny envelopes from all the places that I applied during the first week of April, which is like the classic look in your mailbox week. My high school girlfriend had gotten into Elon, which is like 20 minutes away from UNC Chapel Hill, which was the only school that I got accepted to. And I remember going to her house and being like, well, I got rejected everywhere, but at least we're going to be close to each other in college. And she broke up with me, <laughs> which at the time was like, wow, at my lowest point, uh, this is how it's going to go down. And how are you dealing this as a person of faith at that time? You know, why, Lord? Like, you know, I've done what you've asked me to do, or I had perceived that I had, whether or not that was true. And you know, here I am like knocking on your door and you're pulling the rug out from under me and like her breaking up with me in the middle of that. I was like, wow, it can't, it just can't get any worse. <laughs> but in some ways it's what freed me up to do the thing that God was calling me into. So whether or not she realized that at the time God's hand in that was pretty crazy. And so I went home and talked to my mom and my mom said, Trey, where do you want to go? Forget the skinny envelopes. Where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown in Washington. She said, all right, well, let's go. Get on a plane. And I was like, what is this lady talking about? This is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And she said, if you want something, you're going to have to go get it. And so probably no more than a week later, at most, I was on a plane by myself, flying to Washington, D.C. with a backpack full of recommendation letters. And I sat on the doorstep of the admissions office, demanding to speak with the dean. And so after an hour or so of sitting there and then realizing that I wasn't going to leave, the dean called me in and I ceremoniously dumped all these recommendation letters on the table. And I, in a moment of deep vulnerability, I was like, I have been lied to my entire life. Like I was told that if I had great test scores, if I had awesome grades, if I had extracurriculars and varsity athletics, that I could do anything that I wanted. Were you pretty top of your class? Yeah, and it, it just turns out it doesn't matter. You know, there's this stat that gets thrown around a lot of times during the college admissions process for like how many valedictorians get denied from schools. That stat is just me. And it turns out that going to a rural public school in the middle of nowhere in Ohio with no track record for sending people to top universities meant that my application just went right to the bottom. Wow. So you saying this convincing argument to the dean of admissions at Georgetown. You know, I was basically telling like this story that I've been told by all of the people that I look up to in my life was just fundamentally not true. And I didn't realize that it wasn't true. And so here I am without the options that I 
thought I was going to be presented with. And he just kind of shook his head and he gave me this little spiel about cracks in the meritocracy. And then he was like, what you did is crazy. We are going to put you at the top of the waiting list. And if we don't fill out the class, you'll get a call. And so I you know, went back dragging my tail between my legs to Ohio thinking that it will be by God's grace if this happens, we'll see. And I was sitting in my AP physics exam at a desk, taking the test. I remember my high school principal walked into the room and he said, Trey, you're coming with me. And it was like, I'm taking my AP physics test. He's like, it doesn't matter, you're coming with me. And I went to his office and he had Georgetown's admission office on his speakerphone. We dialed in my mom and they said, we're offering you a spot, but you have to accept it right now. That's the deal. <laughs> and so I was like, mom, can I? And she's like, we'll figure it out. Yes, yes, yes. You were able to make that split decision when they gave it to you to go and, and just financially, were you able to get, get a loan and, or were you able to get support from your parents? It's the classic story of, we'll take whatever we can get. So there was there was a little bit of acted like financial aid. There was a lot of my parents taking on debt. There was a lot of me working part-time jobs through college to pay down some portion. And then there was a long period of time after college of taking that debt over from my parents and doing everything that I could to pay it off. After this miracle happened that you probably didn't want to take for granted, what did you do when you actually got to Georgetown? Tried to focus as intently as I could on getting the skills that I thought that I needed to succeed while also contributing to this financial burden that I had just placed on my parents. So just a brief history on the School of Foreign Services at Georgetown. It was initially set up to groom diplomats to work for the State Department. And Trey says a more secretive part of the school was that it was a feeder into the intelligence community. And that's where Trey wanted to be. But starting his first week at Georgetown, Trey just had no idea how he'd get that opportunity. But says in another God moment, he signed up for a freshman course that allowed him to make an important connection. Not knowing anything about Georgetown necessarily, but knowing that I was really interested in philosophy, I ended up taking a pro seminar called Ways of Knowing. And it was just about like philosophy, more or less. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, the professor of that class was the president of the university. And uh, he was familiar with my situation with arguing with the admissions office and getting in and just like on a whim, took me under his wing and said, you're going to come and work for the president's office. Part of the responsibility is that we were ambassadors to the alumni community for the really high profile connections to the university, like the former president of Philippines or the king of Jordan or Bill Clinton, or take your pick of the prominent alumni of the university, that relationship would be facilitated to the president's office. Working for the president of the university, Jack DeJoya, meant that Trey could hang around and even be introduced to very important alumni, one of them being George Tennant, who was the CIA director during the height of 9-11. Jack told George that I had this crazy story being from Ohio, wanting to go and work in the intelligence community. And then after he left the agency, he ended up coming to Georgetown and spending, I think it was like two academic years as a professor on campus. And so when you spoke to the former CIA director, did that make you want to pursue that even more? Oh, totally. This was a moment in history. This is the peak of 
the activity of the intelligence community where like the CIA was actually owning operational outcomes in theater, which hasn't really happened at any point in American history up until then. And so I think talking to him and seeing how thoughtful he was in the way that you think through critical problems in the world, there are people out there whose job is literally to think in a complex way about some of these problems that are a lot more difficult to unpack than the media would probably have you believe. So what happened made you realize you wanted to focus on the Middle East? If you went and looked at the intelligence community prior to 9-11, largest representation of foreign language experience was Russian. And that's because there was remnants of the Cold War. People that were my age, that were 22 during the Cold War, are now senior leadership in the intelligence community, and they're Russian linguists. You know, that's not the most helpful thing for the war on terror, the early 2000s. I remember like the, the year before me at Georgetown, there were like less than a dozen people in the Arabic program undergrad. And then my year, there were like over 50 of us just as freshmen. And so there was an obvious surge of interest learning Arabic, diving into Middle Eastern studies more broadly. By the time Trey graduated in 2005, he landed his dream job working for the intelligence community. And the stuff he got into kind of went like this. So basically, my role was around data processing and complex name matching. So names in Anglo culture are fairly simple. Middle Eastern names are not that at all. <laughs> they are far more complicated. You know, the most common name in the Arabic language is Muhammad. And uh, so like one in five basically has the name Muhammad somewhere in their name. There's not this like super explainable structure of like given middle sir. There are these naming conventions, things called nispas and kunyas, they're descriptors. So Saddam Hussein al-Tikriti means Saddam Hussein from Tikrit. And then you have Osama bin Ahmed bin Muhammad bin Laden. So it's like Osama, the son of Ahmed, the son of Muhammad, the son of Laden. And that's how he got his name. As a data-centric organization, how do we resolve those things? And there are all sorts of ways that this was kind of hacked in the early years of the war on terror. Like Osama bin Laden, there's literally a hundred ways that you could spell that. O-S-A-M-A, U-S-A-M-A, B-E-N, B-I-N, L-I-D. Like there's just a million different permutations. And so there was a decision that was made that we were going to standardize just with the acronym UBL. Anytime you're referencing bin Laden, it was just UBL. And that is a hack that works for Osama bin Laden because he is <laughs> the FBI's most wanted. It doesn't work for everything. And so there had to be a more computational approach to solving the larger problem. And that's kind of the category that I was focused on. While Trey got to do some meaningful work and the stuff he wanted to do after high school, he also got a bit frustrated by the way things worked inside the government. You know, we grow up with James Bond and the Born Identity, and it's just this industry that has been completely dramatized by the entertainment industry. And so there's some like kind of crazy expectation that you walk in on day one and someone's going to ceremoniously toss you the keys to an Aston Martin and you're going to have like a supercomputer and glass walls everywhere. And, and what was the reality? You show up and you're like literally in a cubicle in a basement with no windows. You have to walk a mile from your car to get to the building and you have to leave your cell phone in the car. So you're completely isolated from the rest of humanity for your entire time that you're there. And it's just like, holy cow, this blows. <laughs> so it's, it's really kind of depressing. I went through phases of ups and downs. Sometimes I would feel like this mission is so important. I feel like I'm doing something that matters. 
And then the next day, for some crazy bureaucratic thing would happen, and you'd just be like, how is this sustainable? So just a couple years into the job, Trey says he felt restricted at work. It would be the little things like not being allowed to use noise-canceling headphones without a waiver. But there were also bigger issues, like the resistance he was met with when he proposed outsourcing certain work to a company that could do things better and more effectively. Let's take a break, and when we're back, we'll find out what Trey did about his work situation. Welcome back. After a few years of working for the intelligence, Trey felt he needed a change in 2008. That's when he got married to his college girlfriend, Michelle, and decided to leave the government and work at this new startup called Palantir. Today, Palantir is worth more than $45 billion. But at that time, Trey was just one of its early employees. And while Palantir was still focused in the defense technology space and big data, much like he was doing for the government, Trey says the work environment was so much different at a startup. It was significantly less bureaucratic, a lot less red tape, and a much more entertaining place to work, for sure. We have these things called stock options. I don't actually know what they are. I don't really know how they work. How did you say your work ethic changed because you had stock options? This idea that it is a meritocracy and your performance and your connection to outcomes is the driver for whether or not this company actually works in the long term. And you could feel it. I mean, like there were times where it was like, we were going to fail. And it was a total adrenaline rush to see not only the mission outcomes, which I cared about deeply given my background, but also the business outcomes, which I had never been interested in before, but suddenly felt really passionately about seeing through. As of this year, Palantir went public with a valuation of over $20 billion. Since Trey was one of the early employees, his equity value in the company would increase dramatically in the years leading up to the IPO. But at this moment of time in his career in 2013, Trey felt challenged by the workload, his compensation, and what was happening in his life. You and Michelle had your first baby when you were at Palantir. What was it like for you to think about your work and how sustainable the 80 plus hours a week would be for your family. When we had the baby and I realized that sleep was kind of a thing of the past, my wife and I had this simultaneous realization that like, man, if I'm going to be a good dad, if I'm going to be around and be useful to her in this moment of deep vulnerability as like a new parent. And I think I was just kind of like staring into the void thinking like, can I really do this <laughs> for like another five years? It was like, this feels like a good time to think about what's next. So that was at 2013 when you decided to quit from Palantir. The story is maybe a little bit more complex than that. And I think this is like one of these critical transition points. Yeah. So let's talk about Founders Fund. Did your days actually get better in terms of your work-life balance moving into this role? There was a steep learning curve at the beginning, but venture capital is one of these industries that you could actually make the argument that working harder doesn't actually make you better at the job. It's not just an input equals output type thing. And I wasn't starting my own fund or trying to scrum to like make things work. I was joining one of the premier venture capital funds in the world. So it was really just like 
how much can I soak up as a sponge to learn from these people that are so smart and interesting. One of the people Trey would learn from was Peter Thiel. Peter is known as one of the founders of PayPal and the first outside investor of Facebook. He's essentially a venture capitalist, which pretty much means he takes risky investments so that he can fuel the growth of innovative companies and make lots of money later on. And getting into this industry can be difficult. So Trey describes it as another crazy God moment of career transition for him to jump from Palantir to Founders Fund. I had known Peter for a long time while I was at Palantir and he and I connected around theology and philosophy more than we did business. And I think it was March of 2013, he kind of called me literally out of the blue and just asked if I was interested in coming to Founders Fund. Uh, and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, you're the chairman of the board of Palantir. <laughs> is this you telling me what to do or is this <laughs> an offer or what exactly is going on? And what did he say to convince you? He just asked me to start meeting with people on the team. It was like a nine month interview process. It is incredibly difficult to hire people at the fund. It's because we have a very consensus driven hiring process. And so, you know, I had to meet with every single person on the investment team and basically answer whatever random crazy questions they had. And then there were a lot of lulls in the process where you know, I'd go a month without hearing anything. And then there'd be like a flurry of activity and I'd fly out to San Francisco and spend a day with everyone. And so, I mean, I didn't start at Founderstone until January of 2014. Although Trey seemed like a good fit at Founders Fund, he recalls that it wasn't an easy start. Uh, man, like the first week at Founders Fund, I would say it became abundantly clear to me that I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember sitting in all of these pitch meetings and stuff. We'd have debriefs after every pitch meeting where everyone that was in the meeting would stand around and talk about like, did you think it was good? Did you think it was bad? Like, what are the good parts? What are the bad parts? How should we move forward or not move forward with this particular opportunity? I remember just like listening to everyone talk about it and be like, how do you make these decisions? I have no idea. I literally have no idea how we're supposed to be making these decisions. Mm. And at some point, did you realize, okay, you're going into a fund you have to bring something that's going to make it money and you have to bring some sort of insight. So when was that? The one thing that I felt like I knew reasonably well was defense technology. And Founders Fund is a, a large investor and earliest investor in both Palantir and SpaceX, which is also a very large portion of their revenue is from the national security community. And so I had kind of told the partnership, I'm going to go and try to find the next Palantir or SpaceX. What's the next 10 plus billion dollar company that is going to have the majority of their work be with the defense community? And so I had this like kind of systematic way that I went through and like pulled up lists of companies that were bidding on federal contracts and then tried to go and meet with as many of the founders of these companies as I could. I made a couple of small investments, but nothing significant. And then I went back to the team and I said, look, like something needs to happen here. We are in bad shape right now as a country. We're still prioritizing our technology development on 20th century platforms like aircraft carriers and manned fighter planes. And you know, we have a bunch of really sophisticated, exquisite systems in very small quantities. So we have like around a dozen aircraft carriers and we're going to have hundreds of airplanes. And it's like the future is going to be far more autonomous. In order to compete with great power adversaries, we are likely going to need thousands and thousands and thousands of very low cost things that perform autonomous missions without putting human 
in harm's way. The scary thing about an aircraft carrier is it costs $13 million, has 5,000 people on it, and it can be destroyed with one missile. Like, it's just not <laughs> strategically terrifying to think about. And so I went back to the partnership, kind of pitched this idea. I'm like, I don't know how we're going to solve this problem. There's really no one that's working on the most important platforms of the future. And they challenged me to think about what it would look like to start that. Anduril was a company that Trey Stevens and Palmer Lucky started in 2014. And this pairing of Trey from the ex-intelligence defense tech space and of Palmer with an AI and consumer technology background may have brought a compelling case to the U.S. government. Part of the idea of the company is that we didn't feel like the right approach was to ask the government to fund all of the research and development and then also fund the purchasing of the product and then also fund the support and maintenance of the product. If you look at the private sector, the way technology is built is the company takes on the risk of developing the thing. And then if the customers don't want it, then that's why it's called risk. But if the customers do want it, then they're able to monetize that and get margins from selling that product. And so we thought that that's probably the way that we should try to work in the defense space as well. What was that like to get an order that was just on a concept? We built the product and then they agreed to pilot the product then scaled over the course of the next two years, really, into production where they had towers that were deployed, they had users that were interacting with the system. These transitions to production, they could take decades. So three years was kind of light speed in some ways. With this business model, Andrew has grown tremendously in its first three years. And it's captured the attention and secured funding from several major investors, including from Founders Fund. So as of today, Andrew has over 350 employees and is worth almost $2 billion. You're now, say, 37. You have a company that's valued at $1 billion. You made a lot of money at some point. You know, as someone who had to borrow money from college, work multiple jobs to pay out debt to that point when you're like, whoa, money's not an issue anymore. How did you process that as a person? Because so many people listening do care about making money and see money as a, a way to value their success at work. I, I don't think how did I process it is the right framing. I think it's how am I processing it? I think that this is always a tension that we're called into as Christians. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of the rich young ruler, where he came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, great teacher, I followed the laws, I followed the commandments, I've done all the things that I've been asked to do, and what else do I need to do? And Jesus didn't say, you're a bad person. He actually said, that's true. You actually are like a really good dude. <laughs> and he said, give up all your possessions because your wealth has become an idol and follow me. There's a sin to be experienced here as well. And so I think for anyone who's coming upon wealth, the question is, are you making it an idol? How are you stewarding that capital in a way that glorifies God and brings people closer to, to Him and plays a part in contributing to His kingdom? And I think that's going to look like a different answer for everybody. It's not like there's one organization that you should just give money to and then your sins will be absolved. That's not how it works. But I think it has to be a constant tension for us as Christians with anything that has the potential to become an idol.
While success for Trey's career in venture capital means investing and building companies that can be worth billions of dollars, that doesn't mean there's no tension in how Trey has to work out his faith with what he has or where he is in its success. Trey recognizes his constant need to also make sure that his success and wealth doesn't become an idol in his life. Because at the end of the day, Trey's faith is what makes him realize how momentary things are in life and who he ultimately submits all things to. If your faith also matters to you, I wanna ask you to think about how much weight you've put on your successes, your career, your salary, your title, and have you made any of these things an idol? Don't get me wrong, while God wants us to do well in our work, to pursue excellence and do well in our vacation, we shouldn't let any of what we do be above who God is in our lives. This is Grace Wong, hoping to bring you stories that can revive your work week. If you like our stories, please support us with a review or share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is edited by Shaina Lee, audio mixing by Joshua Huang and Martin Garcia.